0: 1 Peter chapter 1. The theme Pastor Dan has chosen for our reflections this Christmas is joy to the world, the arrival of our Savior. Uh, joy is a great word. And uh, I l- went online and looked at a couple of uh, dictionaries online and here's what they said. Intense, exultant happiness. The emotion of great delight. Delight. Keen pleasure and elation. And that's true. That's what joy is. Uh, Related words are rejoice and enjoy. We enjoy events. We enjoy vacations. We enjoy a purchase. We enjoy relationships. We enjoy a meal. Uh, One thing that dictionary definitions don't speak about is the joy of knowing Jesus. This is where all popular understandings of joy part company with the Bible. True spiritual joy is always connected to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Non-Christians can possess a kind of joy and happiness, but never can they experience joy at its deepest, most exalted level. And happiness is often a cheap uh, counterfeit for authentic joy. Uh, feelings of happiness, we all know this, we've all been there, come and go depending on circumstances. But joy is not like that. The title for today's message is based upon a phrase found in 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And notice this rejoice. With joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Whatever that is, to me it sounds wonderful. And I wonder how common that joy is, even in the family of God. I want you to take a moment and reflect on your emotional life from day to day. How much Joy is there. And I'm not talking about a frivolity or laughing or that kind of thing. I'm talking about deep inner joy. How much joy is there on a consistent basis? For some of us, our daily outlook is more negative than positive. Perhaps ingratitude or impatience or discouragement or anger or envy. are more familiar to us than joy. And one of the main reasons why this is so is because we, we are expecting our satisfaction and our happiness and our joy to come from circumstances which, as you know, are rarely ideal rather than to come from the Lord and all we have because of him. So let's look at this text. Joy because of God's great mercy to us. Verse 3 starts, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an exclamation of praise and a declaration of hope. When Peter considers all the great things God has done for him, his soul is filled with joy and his mouth expresses praise. He did not look for joy in other people. He did not look for joy in the circumstances He did not look for joy in material things because, frankly, he didn't have very many of those things. And if we look for joy in those areas, we will always come up short. He focused on the incredible realities of the salvation granted to him by the grace of God. And when we gaze upon God and the riches of grace we have in Christ, we will have joy. And joy leads to worship. John Piper says, worship is when, now listen carefully, the mind apprehends great truths about God and the heart kicks in with deep feelings of brokenness and wonder and gladness and admiration and gratitude and the mouth says something like, blessed be God, all blessed and praised and honored and glorified be the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ and the very first thing that comes to Peter's mind as he thinks of God is God's great mercy that he has received without the mercy of God there's no salvation without God's mercy there's no forgiveness of sins without the mercy of God we would be groping in lostness and darkness without the mercy of God there is hopelessness and despair If you want to have great joy, if you want to have inexpressible joy, ponder often the mercies of God to you in Christ. Joy because God has granted us new life. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The grammar in this text would indicate that the new birth takes place in an instant of time. Being born again is an event, not a process. And secondly, the cause of the new birth is God, not man. You are not the cause of your physical birth, and you are not the cause of your spiritual birth. Now, unfortunately, and I think unbiblically, most Christians have been taught that their faith is the cause of their new birth that when you believe, you are born again. First comes faith, then comes the new birth. But how can we believe when we're dead in trespasses and sins? Here's the truth. The new birth, produced by God's working in us, brings us from death to life, engendering faith. When we are born again, faith is born at that moment. But we need the new birth first. And then we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the cause of our new life. And he must get all the glory. And the new birth, over time, results in changes. I've listed some of them in the notes. I was once dead in trespasses and sins, and God, because of his great love, made me alive in Christ. I want you to turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. We know how chapter 2, verse 1 starts. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, It goes on, Then he gets down to verse 4 but God being rich in mercy there's the mercy again we see that in Paul we see that in Peter God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins made us alive. God made us alive in Christ. I was alienated from God because of my sin but God caused me to be born again into a personal living relationship with Jesus Christ. I was blind to spiritual things, not seeing my desperate need of a Savior, but God mercifully opened my eyes to behold the beauty of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I was once self-willed and rebellious and proud, going my own way and following my sinful, selfish desires, but God mercifully intervened and drew me to himself in saving faith. I had no humility, no sorrow for my sins, no desire to change, no inclination to please God, but God granted me repentance, 2 Timothy 2.25. I didn't create and engender repentance in my own heart, God granted, it's a gift of grace, granted me repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. I once thought myself a self-made person determined to live life on my own terms, capable of handling whatever came my way. I trusted in myself and not in God. I put my desires at the center of my little world. But God humbled me and enabled me to see the folly of my ways. And he brought me to my knees in repentance. And he granted me the faith to trust in Christ for salvation. Faith is a gift of God. Before I ignored and even mocked the teachings of the Bible, and now I love the truth of God, and I long to understand it and obey it. Before I had no interest in church or in Christian fellowship. And now I cannot wait to be with the people of God to involve myself in corporate praise to this awesome and great God. Before I lived for the things of this world, material possessions allured me, success was my goal, but now I live for the kingdom, and money and things have little attraction to me. Before I viewed my Funds that I earn, money I earn as my own to do with them what I want to do with them. And now I am content with little, and I find great joy in giving generously to the kingdom of God. Before I lived for myself, now by God's grace I am striving to live for the glory of God. And the list could go on and on. There's a before and after, it's all because of the new birth. Joy because our future is secure. There's much talk in our society about preparing for the future, about making sure you have enough funds stashed away to provide financial security in your senior years, and I'm not entirely against that, not that I did it, Too late now, but I think it's a great idea. But there seems to be an unhealthy, unbiblical obsession with financial issues while we are working and financial security as we grow old. And that focus can make us materialistic and earthbound. It can also lead to greed and lack of generation, uh, generosity. I have to save for me. I have to take care of my future. I can't give generously. No financial nest egg comes close to providing the security and the joy that God has provided for his children. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Three negatives are strung together to indicate the permanence and the indestructibility of our heavenly inheritance. It's imperishable in its substance, in its essence. Earthly inheritance can be withdrawn or destroyed or spent. Our heavenly inheritance Is incorruptible, it's imperishable, it's eternal. It's unstained in its purity. In this fallen world, sin pollutes everything. But in heaven, there is no sin. And so all of the defiling effects of sin are absent. It's unfailing in its beauty. The things of this world lose their glitz and their glamour over time, nothing remains the same. Nothing can stop the process of decay. Heaven is eternal. And the ravages of time have no effect on our inheritance in heaven because in heaven there is no time. Only unspeakable glory and beauty. You know, I believe there's so much about our heavenly inheritance that our puny brains just cannot Comprehend As much as the Bible talks in glowing terms about the glories of heaven, I can't get this mind around it. I cannot comprehend. I have sometimes thought of eternity. I live in time. Beginning and end of everything. Even this message, you hope. We all live in time. But to be in a place where there is no time, Where a thousand, ten thousand, ten trillion years means nothing. Wow, what a place. And when we contemplate that inheritance, incredible joy, intense comfort, expanding hope will come into our lives. Joy because we are being kept by God's power. Now, we may know that God is merciful, and we may know that God has caused us to be born again. And we may know that God raised Christ from the dead and we may even know that God has promised to keep the inheritance for us. But do we know and are we confident that God will keep us to receive the inheritance? After all, we face temptations and trials. I don't know about you, but I often fail God find myself repenting on a daily basis. Does God do anything about that? Do we forfeit our future inheritance because we blow it in terms of our behavior in life? Here's what John Piper says. He asked a penetrating question. Does God send his son to die for our sins, raise him from the dead, to open eternal life, Cause us to be born again and then stand back to see if we'll make it to heaven. If God did that, none of us would make it to heaven. So, what we have is the assurance that God is keeping us. He's keeping the inheritance for us, but right now, He's keeping us for the inheritance. The reason we cannot lose our salvation is not because of our faithfulness, but because of God's. It's not because of our power, it's because of God's power. And this knowledge, this reality, is a cause for great joy. Look at, look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A number of great truths here. First of all, our salvation is not complete. I'm not saying we're not saved. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are saved. But there's a whole lot more to salvation than that experience and what happens in life. There's, a, there's the completion of our whole salvation, our entire salvation, in heaven. So there's much more for us in the future, much more grace and much more glory awaiting us in heaven. There is danger on the way to our final salvations. Testings and temptations are daily realities in our life. We are not home free, and there are many battles to be fought. The protection we need. It comes from the power of God. And when God fights on our behalf, he fights with infallible skill and omnipotent power. God cannot be defeated. We can. He can't. The means God uses to protect us is faith. We're not protected from suffering. We're not protected from death. We are protected from unbelief. And God, by his power, nourishes and sustains and strengthens our faith. So the chain of salvation is forged by God. And the faith to persevere is sustained by God. There's a little book, the second last one in the Bible, the book of Jude, just before the book of Revelation. And there's a wonderful benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and I believe that means to stumble in a fatal way so that you lose your salvation. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Contemplate the reality that God's power is keeping you in a state of grace. Keeping you saved to receive the inheritance. Joy because there is a divine design in our trials. Now if we're not careful we allow the distresses the afflictions in life to rob us of joy and hope. And that's all happened, I think, to some extent in each of our lives. The burdens start to pile on. The struggles are intense. We may doubt the purposes of God. We may question what God is doing. I think we've all been there. So we need the Romans 8.28 truth. We know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, that's the ESV translation, the New American Standard Bible, I like that a little bit better. For we know that God causes, God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And again, I quote Piper, Christianity is a life of tremendous joy first, because we have a great and fail-safe future to look forward to beyond all distresses. And second, now get this, because God has a design to increase our joy in that future by means of our distresses. Let me repeat that. We all think, well, if I had more joy in life, if I had less distress and less stress and less of the affliction, I would have more joy. That doesn't square up a biblical teaching. Because God has designed to increase our joy in the future by means of our distresses in the present. Suffering in this world leads many to reject the very notion of God, at least the notion of a good God. And there are some professing Christians that try to rescue God from a bad reputation by saying that God has nothing to do with suffering. Oh, read your Bible. Read the Old Testament. Lots of, well, lots of wrath, lots of suffering in the Old Testament. And God caused it. God ordained it. What about Job? What about Jesus? What about Paul? What about your life? What about my life? I don't accept the theology that says that Satan's the cause of all of our suffering. I don't think he is, because God's sovereign over Satan. And Peter tells us in a couple of places, 3:17 and 4:19, that we suffer in the will of God. We do what's good and we suffer. but it's the will of God. So don't ever think that, well, if I was more spiritual, more obedient, perhaps, I would have less suffering. That's not necessarily true at all. Some of the most godly people on the earth suffer greatly. And according to the Bible, there's no incompatibility between God's love for us and our suffering. Between our affliction and the experience of joy. I'm not saying the afflictions don't distress us. You and I have all shed tears over stuff that's happened in our lives. But I think we've all experienced the peace of God in remarkable ways and the joy of the Lord in remarkable ways during those times. We live in a culture that expects life to go smoothly. We want comfort, we want ease, we want things to work out according to our plan. And if we're not careful, we quickly lose our joy when that doesn't take place. If we demand that the struggles and the stresses and the sufferings in life end before we can have joy, joy will always evade us. Peter gives us a reason why God sends, permits, allows, ordains trials verse 7 so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes those tested by fire may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ trials test the genuineness of our faith trials increase the metal they're like rebar rebar our faith. And God in his great wisdom and out of his great love for us designs trials for our growth and for his glory. So trials are normal and necessary and they teach us humility and I sure we can all testify, I'm much, much more in prayer when there are trials than when I'm not in trials. Joy because of the certainty of our final salvation. This is where we get our title for the message. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Inexpressible joy. Listen to this. Joy in Christ is the deep good feelings, not the shallow superficial feelings of happiness. The deep good feelings in loving him and believing him. It's the echo of our emotions of experiencing Christ as precious and experiencing Christ as reliable. It's the deep good feelings of being attracted to him for who he is and the deep good feelings of being confident in him for all he will do. See, it's inconsistent for us to say, I trust Jesus for the salvation of my soul, but I have no deep affection for him. I find no great joy in him. I just trust him for the salvation of my soul. Can that be genuine faith? I don't think so. If we lack joy for who Jesus is, just the preciousness of his nature and for what he has done, if we, if we can't find joy there, I would question whether we have saving faith. There's a principle that says when you, you, what you crave, you become. In other words, concentration determines character. So how do we experience what Peter was talking about here? For our, I'm sure we all want this because we're all going through trials, some more than others. No exceptions in this room. You have concerns and heartaches and anxiety. Carol and I, we certainly do. So, how do you experience this joy? We must crave the preciousness of Jesus and have confidence in the reliability of Jesus. Notice the confidence in verse 9 obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. No uncertainty here, no hint of doubt, no presumption here. So if we look back at this text, we find several reasons why this kind of certainty, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, we find several reasons why this confidence is justified. We have been chosen by God. Great mystery, wonderful truth. Secondly, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we possess an incorruptible inheritance that can never be taken away from us. Fourthly, we are protected by the power of God, not by our own resolve. That is so fickle, that is so weak. We are protected by the power of God to receive our final salvation. And fifthly, trials will come. Count on it. But they are divinely ordained to increase our faith, not destroy it. To possess this kind of joy spoken of here and in many other places in the Bible, the eyes of our faith must be faith. must be fixed on God, not on our earthly circumstances. We need to be convinced that He loves us, that He is sovereignly ordaining all events for our good and His glory, that although we feel weak and fallible and overwhelmed, his power will keep us. This focus will result in joy flooding into your heart. Now the text says this joy is inexpressible. The title of the message was the expression of joy. I think the idea is you cannot express the inexpressible. Where do you find words to define this joy how do you put it in black and white you can't it's something in the heart it's something that god does in the soul of his children when they when they trust him in its purest form it is independent of our circumstances this joy is a gift is one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness. And so this Christmas, we have been singing each Sunday morning, joy to the world, the Lord has come. But we don't have to limit, restrict, confine our joy to Christmas or our peace to Christmas. Or our hope to Christmas. We don't do that. It's something that God wants to place in our hearts. Every day of our lives and in every circumstances. Joy starts with Jesus. It begins when you repent of your sins. When you say, well, I try to be a good person and that's good but you're not perfect and to go to heaven you have to be perfect and you can receive as a gift the righteousness of Christ and it's his righteousness his perfection that qualifies every one of us for heaven all of our sins no matter what we have done can be forgiven when we come to the cross and so whatever you're struggling with whatever you're going through. And there's lots of stuff taking place in our lives. It's hard stuff. We don't have to lose our joy. We don't have to forfeit our peace. Through the tears, there's something deeper in here. God is sovereign. God is good. God is at work. Don't look to your circumstances to bring you joy. It ain't going to happen that way. Look to the Lord and may His joy flood your soul. Let's pray.